from us. Well, if you want to have your Bible open, I, I get it open into the Gospel of Luke. And uh, we're not going to do one passage. In fact, we're going to do the whole of Luke, 24 chapters. So I'll explain as we go along. And there's a, there's a title for you as we start, The Gospel With Us Train. The Gospel With Us Train. So Christmas is all about God with us. And we know that the, the, the Bible says that it's Emmanuel, God, with us. But the question that I want to answer this morning is this. What does God with us mean for us? What does God with us mean for us? Or to put it slightly differently, what did the life of Jesus Christ really achieve for us? Now, some of you will recognize this picture. Anybody recognize that? That is the? That is the gone. It is an iconic train, an iconic trip that runs from Adelaide through to Darwin and I think backwards again. And you can go on this breathtaking journey of the sights and sounds of nothing but red sand and one big rock. That's all that you get to see. And it's about $6,000 per person. That's all fine. This morning, we're going to go on a God with us train. And we're going to go through the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to go through some of the spectacular, iconic sights and sounds of the life of Jesus. And I want to tell you that when we get off at the last stop, there is something spectacular. There is something remarkable waiting for us at the last station. Does anybody know how long the gone train takes from top to bottom and top that way? Three days, pretty close, 54 hours, six stops. So guess how long this sermon is going to take? 54 hours and six stops. No, around about 30 to 35 minutes and six stops. And as I said, a spectacular finish. Maybe we should call this the bullet train. The God with us bullet train. So let's go to our first station. The scriptures will come up on the screen, but you can follow in your Bible if you would like as well. Here comes our first station. The train, the gospel train, the God with us train, moves to the incarnation. The incarnation. Luke 1.35, the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And I want you to focus here. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And I want you to look at that verse carefully because I want to unpack it a little bit so that we understand who Jesus is. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Firstly, Jesus is the Holy One. If the angels in Isaiah 6 are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, then Jesus as the Holy One is God's divine Son. Many people say to me things like, well, the Bible never says that Jesus is God's divine Son. It always says Son of God. But the Holy One to be born comes from Mary's womb. It's God the Son. It doesn't need to say, Divine Son. It's God's divine Son. 
And it's this truth that unites the whole of the Christian church. And even the demons know, knew who Jesus was. Take a look at this. In Luke 4.34, the demons say, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. What comes next? The Holy One of God. You see, if Jesus is the Holy One of God, He is the only one who can deliver all of God's promises to you. Did you hear that? If Jesus is the Holy One of God, He's the only one that can deliver all of God's promises to us. And that's why Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1.20. He says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. The Holy One of God will deliver every one of God's promises to you. But secondly, the Holy One is to be born. Jesus is the Holy One. Jesus is a man. Jesus is the Holy Human One. Jesus is not a hybrid. He's not 50% God and 50% man. It's fully God, fully man. Jesus was born as we are born through a woman's womb. The Holy One was born to live our lives and to die our death. God in His nature cannot die. We in our nature cannot overcome death. So God becomes man to overcome death for us. You see, it's in the man Jesus that God comes to us. He stands with us. He acts before us. He, he's on behalf of us. He takes up our cause. Let me give you a wonderful quote by John Calvin. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's really juicy, but just listen to it. John Calvin said, Christ coupled human nature with the divine so that to atone for sin, he might submit the weakness of one nature to death and that wrestling with death by the power of the divine nature, he might win the victory for us. The gospel, God with us train, goes from the incarnation. We move to our second station, which is the temptation. If you've got your Bible, you want to have a look at it. In Luke 4, 1 and 2, it says, Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The very first public ministry of Jesus Christ was to, to confront Satan and triumph where Adam had failed. Here is the second Adam in conflict with the, hum the enemy of humanity. And as we think about this, 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 this conflict, I want to show you three major differences between the conflict between Adam and Satan and Christ and Satan. Here's the first one. There was a different initiative. You might remember if we go back into the garden, it was Satan that was going after Adam and Eve. It was Satan looking for Adam and Eve. What we have here is Jesus looking for Satan. It is Jesus going after the devil. The devil goes after man in the garden. It's Jesus going after the devil in the desert. 
To use the words of Colin Smith, this is Jesus stalking the devil, taking on the enemy. What a wonderful reality for us. There was a different initiative, but there was also a different environment. You might remember the devil, he stalks Adam and Eve in a garden, a garden of plentifulness, a garden of resources. Jesus stalks the devil in the desert where there's no food. There are no resources. And then there was a different outcome, wasn't there? The conflict of Adam and Satan was a complete failure on Adam's side. But here the rematch is a complete reversal. The first Adam fails. The second Adam triumphs. Adam's failure brought misery and suffering on the whole human race. And therefore we eat the miserable fruit of Adam's failure. Because Adam failed, we share in his failures. Because we are born with a nature like Adam. But if we are in Christ, we receive the wonderful fruit of his victory over the, the diabolos. His victory brings us hope. And if we are born again into Christ, his victory flows into our lives. Here's how Paul put it in Romans 5.15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Aren't you grateful this morning that Christ triumphed where Adam failed. The train moves from the incarnation to the temptation and to the rejection. The reception of Jesus after his battle with Beelzebub really did start on a positive note. Take a look at this in Luke 4. So Jesus returns to Galilee. This was after defeating Satan in the desert, and he returns in the power of the Spirit. The news spreads about him all over the countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. There is this fabulous reception. When suddenly, there are these three incredible rejections. Firstly, same chapter, there is this rejection in the synagogue. In Luke 4, Jesus preaches his first public sermon. And have a look at what happens now. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. And as a result, they got up, they drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. I remember my very first sermon back in the 1990s. I need to tell you it was so bad, I should have been stoned. They should have taken me to the edge of the cliff and thrown me off. I preached in utter heresy. If you want to know what I preached on that day, come and ask me afterwards. I'll tell you in my shame and embarrassment. Here Jesus in Luke 4.18, He announces Himself as the Spirit-filled devil conquering Messiah who verse 24 has got to save Jews and Gentiles and the response of the teachers of the law is they are they furious. 
That, that word means mega angry, super angry. It was a, a, a spitting madness. They reject him in the synagogue. Secondly, they then reject him on the Sabbath. We move forward into Luke chapter 6. Jesus looks all around at them and says to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. And everybody celebrated, right? But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were, they were furious. And they began to plot with one another what they might do to Jesus. There's that fury again. That spitting madness. Here is Jesus healing a man from a debilitating disease on the Sabbath. Instead of rejoicing, they get furious. They want to kill him. The one who comes to heal all our infirmities and diseases and the leaders plot how to get rid of him. And then remarkably, there was a rejection on the pig farm. You remember the story, don't you? Into Luke 8, those who had seen it told how the demon-possessed man had been cured. And everybody rejoiced. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So Jesus got in the boat and left them. You remember the story, don't you? Jesus cast out a legion of demons from this man. Jesus rescues a broken Wretched, outcast, lost man. But people, instead of embracing the serpent crusher, are filled with fear and they ask Jesus to leave. They cared more about pigs than they did about people. That happens today, doesn't it? And then this ugly rejection really does find its climax at the cross. In Luke 23, 21, and here's the climax of rejection. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept on shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And you go down a couple of verses later, and after Pilate tries to persuade them otherwise, but with, the loud, say, they, with loud shouts, they insistently, insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. This is the depravity of the Christ-rejecting world that we live in. When natural disasters happen, people always ask, why didn't God do something to stop it? Jesus comes and He calms the storm and we reject Him. A man guns down children and people will ask, why didn't God do something to stop it? Jesus comes and He casts out a legion of demons. And we're furious and we want to kill Him. When, when cancer and sicknesses come, we always ask the question, why didn't God do something to stop it? Jesus comes and heals a man on the Sabbath and we want to kill Him. We have to understand the Christ-rejecting world we live in. Jesus came for his own, but his own received him not. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to be called the children of God. I wonder if you understand this morning, do you understand the Christ-rejecting world we live in? Do you understand your position in it? 
Because we're still in Adam, we will experience all the pain and the brokenness and the tragedy this world has to offer. We're still in Adam. But if we're in Christ, we will experience something of the, of the, of the joy and the love and the hope that is in Christ. As Christians, we're in Adam and we're in Christ. And so we experience the pain of Adam and the joy of Christ together, right? But if this morning, if this morning you're only in Adam, what have you got? If you're only in Adam, all you have is brokenness and pain and death. And this train pulls out, goes to the incarnation, to the temptation, to the rejection. And we come to the very painful station, the very painful stop of the crucifixion itself. And in Luke 24, 32, we read this. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be crucified or to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The full horror of sin and the climax of human rebellion is nowhere more clearly seen in the shouts, crucify, crucify, and then taking nails and piercing the hands and the feet of the Holy One born of Mary. If ever judgment deserved to fall on humanity, if judgment ever deserved to come on man and obliterate him from the face of the earth, it was now. But the judgment did fall. The judgment fell on the man Jesus as he diverts God's wrath onto himself and cries out for his murderers, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. It's there on the cross that Christ isolates himself under the Father's judgment. There on the cross, the Holy One of God cries out, Father, let it fall on me, not on them. It's there that Christ takes the lightning bolt of judgment to release forgiveness and reconciliation. There on that dreadful cross, the door of heaven was opened for all who would believe. And you remember... You remember the response of the one thief, robber, criminal next to Jesus, don't you? In Luke 23, 42, he said, Jesus, he's about to die. He's dying. He's been crucified. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And you remember the response of Jesus? I truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. He said, it's the sufferings of Christ at the cross that opens up paradise, opens up heaven, opens up glory because forgiveness is released to those who believe. Let me ask you, why would you ever want to back away from this Jesus? Why would you ever want to turn your back on Him? Why would you ever want to move away from Him? 
would you not want to come continually embracing this Christ, this Lord, this King, who suffered on that cross? We're getting a little closer to the end. Train the gospel train, the God with us train goes to the station of the incarnation, the temptation, the rejection, the crucifixion. And in Luke 24 6, we land at the resurrection. He's not here, he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. You remember some of the women go down to the tomb on the Sunday. And the angel meets them and says, He's not here. He's risen. He's gone. He told you it was going to be like this. Jesus has gone through the sin-defeating, Satan-crushing, judgment-consuming sacrifice at the cross, has come out in resurrection life because it is impossible for death to hold down the Holy One born of Mary. If Jesus was born for your death at the cross, Jesus was born for your resurrection from the dead. Do you hear that? If He was born for your death on the cross, He was born for your resurrection. And there is a response that you have to make. There is a response that everybody must make. And here it comes. Luke 24, 47, this is Jesus speaking to His disciples after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus. He says, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And here it comes. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. This gospel story, this God with us train, it must be proclaimed. It must be announced. It must be heralded. The incarnation, the temptation, the rejection, the crucifixion, the resurrection. And it calls for a response of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now you might sit here this morning and say, well, what on earth does repentance mean? It means this very simply. Repentance means a change of mind. It's a change of position. It's a change of stance. Let me put it this way. It's where you change your mind where you were looking at Jesus from a worldly point of view to looking at Him through the Bible's view, who He really is. Repentance is to change your mind about how you see Jesus. I wonder this morning whether you need to say to Jesus, Jesus, I was wrong about you. Perhaps this morning you need to say something like, Jesus, I thought you came to condemn me. I thought you came to judge me. But now I know you came to redeem me and forgive me. Jesus, I thought that my life was about me, 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 and mine, mine, mine. But actually, it's all about you. And you living in me and you giving me everything that you have and preparing me for glory that's coming. Do you understand that when you turn to Jesus, when you turn to the Holy One born of Mary, when you turn to the one who defeated the devil in the desert, when you turn to the one rejected by men on the cross, when you turn to the one who rose in victory from the tomb, 
to understand that what's released to you is forgiveness of sins. It's when you turn, when you repent, when you turn to Christ. He takes your sins and He throws them behind His back, never to be seen again. He takes your sins and He buries them in the bottom of the ocean, never to be retrieved again. And when you turn to Christ, every single promise that God has made will be delivered to you. Now and one day. But there's one more stop, isn't there? And I told you it's a spectacular finish. It's a remarkable finish. Where's the station? Where do you think we're going? The station pulls into the ascension. Have a look at these words and look at them carefully. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. I remember the days, well, at least back in South Africa, I'm not sure about where it was in Aussie. I remember the days when the ascension of Jesus was a public holiday. These days, there's far more fuss about the depths of Halloween than the heights of Jesus in heaven. The rise of humanity is a modern-day babble that is far more important than Jesus Christ ascending to the right hand of the Father. But I want you to look at those two verses again. I want you to see something. I missed it. And often we can miss it. It's easy to miss it. And here's the question. As Jesus was about to be taken up to heaven, as He was going up into heaven, what's He doing? What's He doing? Somebody shouted out. What's He doing? It says it twice. Verse 50, verse 51. He's doing what? He's blessing them. He's blessing them. As he's going up, he's blessing them. And what does that mean? It means as Jesus returns to the right hand of the Father, his life, his incarnation, temptation, rejection, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, it means it was all for you. It's not just God with us, it's God for us. It's God with us so that He can be for us. And as He's going up and He's blessing, it means that, that, that every single aspect of His life was done for us. It was God with us, for us. Maybe we can sort of start to pull it together like this. Remember Ephesians 1, 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every blessing in Christ. Let me put it to you this way. As Jesus is going up and He's blessing His disciples, here's what He's saying. If you're on this train, if you're on the gospel train, if you're on the God with us train, let me tell you what God with us means for you. Here's number one. It means that you're delivered from this curse of sin and judgment. It means, number two, you are forgiven all your sins. 
Number three, it means that you are no longer a slave to sin, but a child of God. Number four, you have joy and hope of everlasting life. Five, you have the Spirit of God living within you, and one day you will have glory forever, and we're just merely touching the very tip of the gospel iceberg. Here's what Jesus said. Did I not tell you if you believe, you will see the glory of God. I want to say to you, child of God, here this morning, if you're a child of God, do you see everything that God with us means for you? Do you see what it means to be on the train? Do you see what it means to take in the spectacular, iconic sights and sounds of the life of Jesus from His incarnation to His ascension and all that that means for you. It's all for you. Everything for you. But perhaps here this morning, you're not on the train. I actually love reading about the gone train. But there's a difference between reading about it and being... On the train. Faith is traveling on the train. It's not reading about the train. Faith is being on the train. And taking in every sight. From incarnation. To temptation. To rejection. To crucifixion. To resurrection. And ascension. And receiving every Blessing that is in Christ. I want to say to you this morning, if you're not on the train, come on the train. Turn to Jesus. Believe on Him. And you know where the train's going to take you, don't you? All the way. All the way to glory. Did I not tell you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. One of the responses of the child of God is an inexpressible joy that is untapped and untouched by the circumstances of life. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we sing joy to the world. And then I'm going to close with a couple of, I hope, pertinent applications for you.